as a leader, that's what's important is tapping into the emotions of your team just as much as having the aligned intellectual strategy, but also having that human emotional connection, that emotional alignment with yourself, with your team. I think that's at least equally important to success of a company. Welcome back to the Build Podcast. I'm Blake Bartlett, a partner at OpenView. The world of SaaS is always evolving. And we're here to help you adapt, compete, and win with your startup. The Build Podcast brings you stories and insights from my conversations with the most successful people in SaaS. In today's episode, I chat with Godard Abel, co-founder and CEO of G2. As you likely know well, G2's reviews platform is an industry standard and it influences software buyers of all shapes and sizes. But today, Godard and I aren't talking about ratings, reviews, or software purchasing decisions. Instead, we're talking about conscious leadership. It's the framework he uses with his management team and by extension, the entire company. Godard tells us how conscious leadership has changed his company and his own life for the better. All that and more on this episode of Bill. So let's dive in with Godard Abel. Well, Godard, thank you so much for joining us here on the Build Podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, fun to be here with you, Blake. So the discussion topic for today is conscious leadership, which is a framework and a practice that you have adopted at G2. And there's a lot to unpack with this. So maybe first things first on conscious leadership, how did you find conscious leadership and why did it resonate with you? Yeah, I found conscious leadership back in 2007. And I've been an entrepreneur now for over 20 years. I was building my first company, Big Machines, which was a SaaS CPQ company. And frankly, I struggled for many years, struggled with near failure. We started the company back in 2000, dot-com hype raised a bunch of money, but three years later, we were almost bankrupt. And then from there, it turned into what felt like a big struggle. Ultimately, the business had success, but I also always had all this anxiety, fear, depression feeling in my forehead. And conscious leadership to me was a way to grow beyond that and to not only have success in business, but to become more conscious, more aware and enjoy the ride much more while becoming a better leader. So you kind of discovered it in the trenches, so to speak. Yes, the trenches of entrepreneurship and I think the challenges and seeking a more enlightened path to become a better leader, a better human, have more success, but also enjoy the ride more. Before finding conscious leadership, were there other frameworks that you looked at or other sort of solutions to the problem? To be honest, not on that plane. You know, obviously, I'd gone to business school, been a consultant, so I knew all the kind of business strategy, HR, all that business stuff. But conscious leadership to me is on a different plane, self-awareness, consciousness, presence, and I really had not explored that before. So... A case study from uh, business school does not help you when you're actually in the moment (laughs) needing to deal with very human issues that face you, especially when building a startup. It doesn't help you with the emotions. And as an entrepreneur, I've found, you know, obviously the business stuff is important, but I think more important to persevering, succeeding is the emotional part. You know, both your own emotions, your team's emotion. And I think as a leader, that's what's important is tapping into the emotions of your team just as much as having the aligned intellectual strategy, but also having that human emotional connection, that emotional alignment with yourself, with your team. 
I think that's at least equally important to, to success of a company. So let's unpack the specifics of conscious leadership here. What's it all about? Well, to me, it all starts with self-awareness as a leader and being more aware of my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions. So in that sense, a lot like mindfulness and part of the practice. And when I did meet my first conscious leadership coach, Jim Dethmer, one of the first things he taught me was to meditate in presence. That's how we'd start every coaching session with five to 10 minutes of just breathing and presencing. And so I think that's where it starts, becoming more aware of yourself and separating yourself from your thoughts and your stories that are always you know, flying through your mind by becoming present and, and self-aware. And now, where do you go from there? So you start with presencing, you start with mindfulness, and what's the next step? I think the next step as a leader is then using that to, one, learn faster about yourself. And I think one of the things I learned from Jim was you know, becoming aware of the feelings, the emotions that were going on in my body and not just being so focused on my mind and having that be more attuned to my blind spot, things I might be missing. And then I guess, especially as a leader, it becomes important in being able to better connect with my team, with your team as a leader. And because I do think when I show up more present, more open, I'm more curious with my team. I can learn more, learn faster, and we can align faster to the common goal, the common purpose of achieving the mission of the company. And so I think that's where it really then becomes meaningful, where you can be more open to your team and you can remain what they call above the line, which is curious, open, and really being open to learning together. And I think that's so much what you do as an entrepreneur. You're listening to your customers, your team, your investors integrating all that feedback in a common vision. But I think the more present, the more conscious you are, the better you can do that. So conscious leadership, I know, starts with oftentimes, at least some of the stuff that I've heard about it, it starts with this question of where am I right now? And that then leads to one of two options. Am I above the line? Am I below the line? You mentioned a little bit above the line. What does this framework mean? Yes. And I do think this question of where am I and above the line to me means when you're in that curious, open state, when you're open to learning, to really listening to each other, and then below the line, and I often go there, where I'll be angry, I'll be righteous, where I just think I know the right answer, I just want something, and I will just impose that on my team. And so it's a very different state. And I think there can be some use in it. Sometimes you have a crisis as a leader, you just need to make a quick decision. And have the team move on. But I think the problem with being below line, it leaves scar tissue, you know, where you will hurt your team and you will lose connection and trust with them, which I think long term will really hurt you. Whereas if you stay above the line, you stay open, then you can really fully leverage your team, their insights, their genius, and ultimately have a much, much more successful, much more healthy team. Yeah, and I found it interesting as well that you know, going below the line is something that we're actually kind of hardwired to do as humans. You know, evolutionarily speaking, we were meant to perceive threats to our survival and then do radical things to avoid those threats <laughs> and to defend ourselves against those threats. But today, our brains aren't capable of deciphering between a threat to our survival and a threat to our ego. And our brains treat it as the same thing. And so, we are hardwired to go below the line to become more defensive and to become more focused on being right rather than being curious. Yeah, 
And I think that that is an impactful way to look at it. And it's also, you know, it's a more gracious way to look at it. If you know that you're hardwired to go below the line, when it happens, you don't have to beat yourself up over it. It's more about being aware that it happened and taking a step back and say, how do I reset? No, I think that's a good insight, Blake. And I do think, you know, when we're nature and when we have to run from a predator, a wolf, a coyote, whatever it is, right, that the below line serves us well, it protects ourselves. We just go with instinct and we just go, we just run, we attack, we take quick action to survive. So it is there to protect ourselves physically. And, but I think a less healthy form of it is just there to protect the ego. And you're right, luckily, and we say entrepreneurship, there's a lot of stress. It feels life or death, but the good news, it's not truly life or death. And also coming out of awareness, hey, if my startup fails, most of us, we're in tech, we can get another job, right? We can feed our families. So, but I think those same instincts can then hurt us because it does create all that anxiety, all that adrenaline. And if we're doing that to ourselves, you know, 200 times a day, then it just wears us down and the anxiety overwhelms us and we become less effective. And I do think what you said there, it's okay to be below line. That's what my coach Jim always told me. My coach Sue tells me today, it's just be aware accept it. And then just doing that, oftentimes you shift back to being above the line. So jumping into a little bit more of the context at G2 and what this looks like in practice, how does it get instantiated into a team? And what does it look like day to day for you as a leader and for your leadership team around you? Yeah. And to instantiate it for a team, well, number one, I aim to keep working on myself because I still often go below the line. So one, I aim to work on myself, model that behavior. And number two, what we've done, we've hired a company coach, Sue Heilbronner. She's also our conscious leadership coach. She actually also learned from Jim Dethmer and his group. And somewhat, I would say, a disciple you know, of Jim. But she's been coaching us now for the last two years. And it's actually the first company I've started doing conscious leadership, my prior two companies, but I only worked on myself. And I said, wow, to really have the impact, I want to bring this to my team. And so now Sue works with all of us. She comes to every leadership meeting I have. She comes to offsite. She also does one-on-one sessions with my leadership team. And just this morning, we did a conscious check-in with my C-level leaders and myself. And we do that once a month to really focus on the unsaids, what feelings, what emotions are we withholding from each other, what perceived hard messages haven't we given each other, where are we not aligned? And so that's a really cool exercise because I think that tends to happen in teams. You know, you don't want to hurt each other. You want to be polite. You're too busy. And so we withhold from each other. And that's, I think, what Sue also really brings is make sure we fully reveal ourselves to each other. I like this idea that there is both, if you will, first party value and collective community value or team value in adopting something like conscious leadership. The first party value is you know, being just that much more aware of what puts you above the line, what puts you below the line and living in this way and leading in this way that's oriented towards commitments. And so it is going to make you a better leader. And there's going to be a lot of that sort of personal first party benefit, if you will. But when you think about it, and I know that conscious leadership is all about these commitments, the 15 commitments, but when you view those as not just commitments that I'm making it as an individual, but commitments that we're all making together to one another, and that we're all sort of on the same page, and we're all going to operate in the same way. We're all going to communicate in the same way. We're all going to agree as to what's good behavior and bad behavior in a meeting or when there's a difficult decision. And so when you get it to be that mutual commitment, we're all on the same page, it creates the opportunity for 
really exponential impact of a framework like this. Indeed. And, and I think we can also start to coach each other, you know, because I still go below the line, but now not just Sue can call me out, but my CRO, Mike, my CMO, Amanda, they can all, you know, we're learning together and we can keep coaching each other all the time. Now, I mentioned that there's these 15 commitments. You know, we, we don't have to go through all 15. There's a lot. I encourage folks to go check out Conscious Leadership, all kinds of things to dig into. But what's your favorite? Which ones stand out and are always front and center for you? Yeah, and they put them in a sequence on purpose. So I do like the first one, especially, you know, where they really talk about taking responsibility for your own experience. And they talk about 100% ownership say, oh, I think this meeting is boring or, you know, this is wasting my time. And a lot of us do that. I know I do that at times. And then the 100% responsibility is like, well, how am I contributing to that? And could I speak up and take the meeting in a different direction where it will become engaging and will become productive versus just sitting back? And they also talk about this victim, villain, hero triangle. You know, in that case, on the, I'm on the triangle. And when you're below the line, you're on the triangle. But in that case, I'm being a victim. Oh, this meeting's boring. They're wasting my time. And I'm below the line versus if I shift back to presence, curiosity, I could be more curious. What's the speaker really trying to get across that I'm not listening to? Or how could I change the path of this meeting to make it productive, to make it engaging versus just sitting back? Hey, it's not my meeting. I'm just going to sit back here quietly as a victim, stew versus owning my 100%. How can I change my experience in the moment? And one of the commitments that I found very interesting, because at first blush, it is different than what you would typically expect in business advice. And that is the commitment around feelings. Mm. A lot of times, the general sentiment is like, your feelings don't belong in the workplace. Let's get business done. Yeah. <laughs> but feelings is one of the commitments. And specifically, it's I commit to feeling my feelings all the way through to completion. So what does that mean? Yeah. And I think you're right, Blake. A lot of times in the MBA consulting world, we're taught to like, hey, just look at the data, right? And a lot of like business executives, I'm just going to let the data make the decisions. I'll let the algorithm decide. And I think conscious leadership takes a different view that there's a lot of insight, a lot of wisdom in our feelings. And I think my story, conscious leadership story is, hey, there's probably something to that. There's more that the data is not telling. And which then you can be curious, be like, hey, I know the data says that, but I was just talking to a customer. Yeah, they're not feeling it, right? The metrics look perfect, but they're not feeling it. And I'm not feeling it. So I think there's business insight in the feelings. And the other advantage of feeling your feelings to completion, what Jim Dethmer always says, any feeling, joy, sadness, you know, anger, any feeling, if you feel it to completion, it tends to be gone within 60 seconds. You know, and he would say even the most intense pain, my mother passed away last year and I felt tremendous sorrow, tremendous sadness. And I think I'm not yet this conscious, but I think Jim would say even in that moment, if you really feel the sadness to completion, it will be gone in 60 seconds. Whereas if you trap it, you don't fully feel it, you try to avoid it, then it lives on. You're trapping the energy waves in your head and that emotion could live on with you forever. And if you keep doing that, and all of a sudden, you know, you're kind of just caught in this storm cloud of lingering emotion that you haven't felt to completion. What they also teach is normally, you know, we say, hey, we only want joy. We don't want sadness. We don't want fear. We don't want anger. But if you block one, you block them all. And entrepreneurship is such an emotional roller coaster. To me, that's ultimately also why I do it. 
you get the tremendous highs, but you also get the tremendous lows. And if you can be comfortable feeling both, then you feel really alive and you can really enjoy the ride. And so that's, that's also what I'm aiming to do. Yeah, it's using another one of the commitments about curiosity, having curiosity. I think you can have curiosity towards your own feelings. And a lot of times we don't have curiosity. We just feel the feeling. And especially if it's a bad feeling, you just start doing things to make it go away and to stop feeling the bad feeling. And so if you're in a meeting and the bad feeling is, I feel like I'm being criticized, then the things you start doing to make that feeling go away is be defensive or fight back. And instead, recognizing the feeling and then applying that curiosity. Huh, that's interesting. I feel this way. Why do I feel that way? And then allowing the cycle to go through and to feel the feeling. And it won't then be the thing that drove you to have, you know, a terrible back-to-back meetings the entire day and piss off your entire team and you know, screw up a, a deal or two along the way. Yes, It will allow you to have it resolve in 60 seconds, move back above the line, and then the rest of your day by focusing on your feelings and being curious about your feelings and allow yourself to feeling uh, to feel them to completion, it will actually make your day more productive and the business value will come because you're working from the right set point. I think that's a great insight, Blake. Yeah, then you can be curious. What's my feeling telling me? And I find this is hardest when I get feedback and probably for all of us. And my story is for all of us. And it's back to that survival instinct we have in nature, you know, where we're trying to protect ourselves. But I think feedback is a lot like that. And again, None of our situations in tech are truly life or death or almost none of them, you know, but it feels like it when someone's criticizing our work or criticizing me as a CEO, or I get a negative glass door review, it does always hurt. And you're right. My fight or flight instinct is I'm just going to, I'm going to get angry. I'm going to defend it. I'm going to say it's BS. It's not true versus being curious. Hey, what is it in what this person is saying that could be true? How might I learn from it? How might I get better? And so one of the things they also teach in conscious leadership, they say the only thing you should do, do you know what the only thing is you should do when you when you get feedback, Blake? Receive it? Yes. They just say, just, just say thank you. And this is mm-hmm. also really hard for me. Don't react, don't defend, and then just kind of let it sit and then come back the next day. And then you can choose, you know, was there something valid to the feedback you got, Blake, or is it something you choose to discard for whatever reason? But I still struggle with that because always when somebody criticizes me or or even it's customer feedback, something bad G2 is doing, I always want to defend, right? And uh, versus just saying thank you, letting it soak in, and then coming back the next day from a place of above the line, but giving ourselves that time because naturally, and I still do this, like when I get negative feedback, I still withdraw, I still go below the line. So that's why if I just say thank you and wait, then I can come back to it later from an above the line perspective. Yeah, it's it's amazing the age old advice of of sleep on it. Yes. How often that is impactful. You think you want to send that email? Well, sleep on it. Let's see if you still want to send it tomorrow. You, you think you want to defend when you got that feedback? Well, sleep on it. Maybe there's a nugget of wisdom in there that you actually needed to hear. And I think you're right, Blake, especially by email. And we've all done it, right? I've done it where someone sends you a harsh email and then we want to send back like six paragraphs about why they're wrong, why I'm right, and what they're missing. And that never helps, you know. So at a minimum, don't reply to the email. Or if you feel need to reply, just say thank you. And hey, let's find a time to talk about this later. You know, So both parties have some time to cool off versus being attached to righteousness and being right. But it's still hard, right? It's like intellectually simple, but emotionally for me, it's still hard. 
as all powerful principles are, <laughs> much harder in practice than in speaking about it. But we're talking a lot about all of the good things here and the potential impact and what it looks like in practice. But for anyone that's listening right now and considering, hey, I want to look into this conscious leadership thing a little bit more, what are some of the downsides that folks should be mindful of or things that you'll need to adapt through uh, if you do embrace a framework like this? Yeah. I mean, I will say it slows you down. And so there's moments when you're in a true crisis, when those below the line instincts might actually be the right ones. And we have those on occasion in the company. Most of the time we don't, right? Where we just got to act, you know, something's blowing up, sites down. Like we don't have my stories. And some of those times it may slow you down, right? Where it's like, hey, let's take touch with our feelings. Now let's just get the freaking site back up. You know, so there are those moments. But I think most of the time to me, it's worth taking the time, but it will slow your leadership process down. And even we begin every leadership meeting now with a conscious check-in that actually takes the first 15 minutes where we're not talking about business, we're not making decisions. So I think you have to be willing to invest the extra time. And we're also investing money in it. We actually, you know, we pay our coach a significant retainer every year. And so it does cost time, money, and effort. And like all coaching, I think it only works if you're truly open to it. And also what my coach said, and I didn't really get into this until 2007. I think I was 37 years old. And, you know, my coach also said, hey, you probably weren't open to this earlier in your career. And you know, it may be true for a lot of people in my 20s. I was just so kind of an adrenaline junkie and, you know, and, and maybe I wouldn't have even been open to learning. So I think you also have to be open to it. And you have to be at a place where you're ready to learn on this dimension. And I think you know, there's a right time in life for all of us when that comes. And it's different for everybody. But I think also just something to be aware of, like, don't force it, right? If it feels like torturous, all this conscious leadership stuff, like it just, it just feels hard. I'm not, I'm not genuinely curious about it, then I'd say don't do it. But my story is most people get to that point in life where they're like, oh, wow, I do want to become more self-aware. I do want to grow. And for me, that was fairly late in life. So I hope others can find it sooner. But I think it has to genuinely feel like a choice you want to make. I've recently gotten obsessed with this idea of removing shoulds from your life mm, yes. because shoulds are usually things that you don't want to do, but somebody else told you you should do, or you read in an article somewhere that you should do. And so then you start saying, well, I really should do this. Yeah. And then you end up with a life or a, a work life or whatever it is that's full of things that you should be doing that you don't want to be doing. <laughs> and so back to conscious leadership, if you're listening to this right now, thinking you should embrace it. That's not the point of the conversation. You should consider it. <laughs> you should learn more. But then, as you said, if it really resonates with you and if it's the thing that you have genuine curiosity about, and as you learn more, you fall in love with it and you see the potential impact of it, then yeah, move forward. But this idea of shoulds and sort of feeling obligated to do something because you heard it on a podcast or read it in an article usually leads to more harm than, than benefit. I think you're right. Yeah. Listen to your feelings on this as well. So if it feels right and you're naturally curious, you want to explore it, awesome. So there's another commitment aid about genius, getting in your zone of genius. And my story is also when we're in a should state, we're never in our zone of genius. And that's probably my other goal with conscious leadership living is to get in that zone where you, know, you feel that ease and flow, you're doing your best work. That's the zone I love being in. I think most of us love being in that zone. And my story is, yeah, if I'm doing a should, it never doesn't feel like that zone, right? The zone is like, this is my natural gift. This is what I'm meant to be doing. It's just flowing through me, which I think is also the ultimate conscious state, right? It's not happening to me. It's not happening by me. It's just kind of flowing through me. 
and I'm just bringing my natural gifts to the world. And I think we all have those moments. You know, it could be a simple thing, like we're writing a blog post and it's just flowing. You know, like I'm not writing it, it's just being written through me. And that's, I think, when mm-hmm. I think when we're in that zone. And I think you'd also feel it in sports, you know, like I'm a runner and I wish I had it every day, but some of those days I just have that run where I'm like, I'm running faster than ever. And it feels super easy. It's effortless. And I'm actually kind of watching myself run. It's not even me. And I think, and whatever our passions are, right? For some people it's music, but, and it can happen at work as well. But if we can find that zone where we do have that ease and flow, it, you know, it's kind of effortless, but we're getting a lot done. We're contributing a lot. That's, that to me is a, the magical zone. So you started to touch on it there, but I, I wonder in closing, outside of the professional benefits and the benefits to yourself as a leader, the benefits to a team and an organization, how has conscious leadership impacted your personal life? Yeah, and it's tremendously helped me. And that's where I say it's not just conscious leadership, but conscious living. And I mentioned running. I love running. But also in 2007, 2008, when I first started on this journey, I dealt with my anxiety a lot of times by overeating dealing with my stress by having an extra snack in the kitchen. I was drinking like six Diet Cokes a day. I never drink one anymore. I was drinking too much alcohol because at the end of the week, I just couldn't handle it anymore. So I'd go have a few too many drinks. And as a result, I was also overweight. And you know, and then I made this shift and really without even trying, a lot of those habits stopped. And you know, I am a runner. One of my dreams was always to run the Boston Marathon. And you do have to qualify. You know, I think at that age, I had to run under 310 which is a pretty fast marathon, pretty much running seven minutes a mile. I'd never done that before in my life. But then I also applied the same zone, the same consciousness. And then I you know, ran Boston Marathon in 304. And it was one of those amazing experiences where I got in the zone and it felt easy. Although, you know, it was, to me, it felt like a tremendous accomplishment. And so yeah, it certainly helped my health. I also feel more connected to my wife, my kids. We have three kids. And it also went as in this anxiety, they were infants and my life just felt so overwhelming. So I wasn't great at connecting with them. I'd be at home with my wife at dinner. I'd still be thinking about work, you know, wanting to check my phone instead of just being with my family and enjoying my life with them. And all of that has now improved. And I still drift, but I do the same thing at the dinner table where I'm, if I'm drifting below the line, drifting back to work, I just shift, I breathe and I can enjoy the time with my family. And so that's why I love this journey. I do think it can make all all facets of our life better. Well, Godard, thank you so much for joining us on the Build Podcast here today to talk about conscious leadership, but also that in the context of conscious living. Lots of good stuff here and really appreciate you taking the time. No, thank you, Blake, and glad you're now on the, the conscious leadership journey with me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you like what you've heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to stay up to date with all the new episodes. Want more insights from OpenView? Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily PLG content and head to our website to sign up for our weekly newsletter.